Blog Talk Radio. First World Order Radio, finally, finally, we are on the air. No doubt. All right, all right. There's always going to be somebody in the building on First World Order Radio. We get on into some of that order consciousness tonight. First World Order Radio every Wednesday, 8 p.m. We got to talk about what is taking place on the planet. There's always going to be somebody in the building on First World Order Radio. First, we need to let you know we're going to be doing more shows, giving out more information on Wednesdays. Wednesday at 8 o'clock, we are now going to make this the hottest day of the week. Lovers in time, order, importance. The most prominent parts, voices, or instruments. Earthly state of human concerns and existence. An indefinite multitude, quantity, or distance. System regulates to bring about specifics in the group based on value and natural characteristics. Current radiates electromagnetics of sound through the air that your thoughts transmits it. Proceeding lovers in time, order, importance. The most prominent parts, voices, or instruments. Earthly state of human concerns and existence. An indefinite multitude, quantity, or distance. Order. System regulates to bring about specifics in the group based on value and natural characteristics. Current radiates electromagnetics of sound through the air that your thoughts transmits it. You need to understand how magical this, uh, something like this every Wednesday can become. So you need to start uh, getting your calendar right, getting your schedule, your schedule right. You need to know our intention straight out. All right, so, I mean, these clues are given throughout the various languages was to piece the puzzle of this ancient mystery school back together again. And what we plan on doing, both of us, is bringing y'all some surefire dynamite. We're going to take this level up a notch. We're going to have stuff to do here. This is not just going to be about philosophies and theories. Shit that works. You have to activate the pipe in which that produced this black chemical called melanin. We, what we did was gave a hard line in the sand between the different definitions of Esoteric study, exoteric study. Playtime is over.
once again, this is Brother Fahim looking the ill cop uh talk uh talking to you tonight. Taking the uh place of uh Dr. Aline, El Bay. I'll be your host for tonight. And our topic uh for tonight will be about the Omex. Part of the history of the Omex, where we the Washita Moors came from. Those of you that know the history of the Washita and studied the Omex that had uh, originated from Africa, from the African continent, to the Americas, and the first people that were here in the Americas. They were the first one that was here. That's what we are called the ancient ones. Let me start off here from a book from the Philaxic Society by the Prince Hall Masons group that started this society by a uh, Joseph Wakes. He's no longer with us now. Peace be upon him. But I'm going to start off with this book, with this book, the Philaxic Society, and a few pages I'm going to go over with you for tonight. And I'm going to read this paragraph here. It says, I reflected that there had undoubtedly been Negroes in this country and that this has been the first epoch of the world. Hmm. So you know, they use the word Negro, that has been some time ago when he made that statement. I'm going to read to you what's called, what they call, anyway, what they call the Olmec problem. It says here, the discovery in the town of San Andres, Tuxla, in the state of Veracruz in Mexico, a laborer clearing his field discovered what looked like the bottom of a great iron kettle turned upside down. He reported his discovery to the owner of the hacienda, who ordered it excavated. Instead of a kettle was found a colossal stone head. It was left in the excavation reports J.M. Megler, as one would not think to move it being of granite and measuring two yards in height with corresponding proportions. Megler visited the Hacienda in 1862, a few years after the excavation, to see this head for himself. Seven years after Megler's visit in 1869, a brief notice from him describing the discovery was published in the Bulletin of the Mexican Society of Geography and Statistics. On my arrival at the Hacienda, Megal reports, I asked the owner to take me to look at it, and I was struck with surprise as a work of art. It is, without exaggeration, a magnificent sculpture. But what astonished me was the Ethiopic type represented I reflected that there had undoubtedly been, as he said, Negroes in this country, and that that this had been in the first epoch of the world. J.M. Megler would be noted as the first person to publish evidence of the Olmec civilization, now accepted as the mother civilization of Mesoamerica. Let me go on. The presence of a gigantic Negroid head in the Americas invoked little in the way of academic curiosity from 19th century American archaeologists. Now let me stop right here. Now you know we don't use the terms Negroid, Negroes, colored, black, 
black American, African American, and so on. We don't use that foolishness. So, so I'm just reading read from what is stated in this paragraph here, in the paragraphs in this book. Okay, so bear with me. Okay. The presence of a gigantic Negroid head in the Americas invoked little in the way of academic curiosity from the 19th century American archaeologists. The first archaeologists to visit the site appeared in 1905, some 35 years after the head was on Earth, and he traveled to the site from Europe. Others had dismissed the discovery perhaps as being some kind of regional peculiarity. The German archaeologist Edward Seller, a respected student of ancient America, and his wife inspected the Olmec head and suggested that instead that it might be the product of a more universal culture. Check that out. After another two decades, in February of 1925, Franz Blom, an anthropologist, Oliver Lafarge, traveled to Mexico, they confirmed, among other things, that the colossal head was still there. Then they went on to discover, discover the greatest Olmec archaeological site of all La Venta with this collection of great stone sculptures. Among these sculptures was another colossal stone head quite similar to the one that had been found in St. Andrews, Tuxla, the Olmec site that became known as Presopotis. The discoveries made by Blom and Lafarge gave rise to, to the suspicion that there was something major to be discovered in the state of Veracruz in Mexico. Still another decade later, though little had been done in the interim, the respected Yale archaeologist Michael Coy reports that by about 1938, there were strongly grounded suspicions that an entirely new civilization somehow related to the Maya, but different from it, and of an unknown age, was to be discovered in the jungle strongholds of the southern Gulf Coast Plain. Now notice how he said a new civilization now. Now see how a lot of these European races and a lot of bigotry among them, how they were back in the days, because they could not give us the credit of being the ancient ones at the time, and some of them still don't. So let me move along here. Okay. The landmark discovery was actually made by Matthew W. Sterling <clears throat> in 1938, nearly, 18, nearly 80 years after the civilization was first headed, <clears throat> headed at. Sterling found out found that in addition to the Olmec sites at Tresopotis and La Venta, there was a third great site at San Lorenzo, a site that would be later be excavated by Michael Corey from 1966 to 1968. Nine more colossal heads would be found in San Lorenzo. The unearthing of the Olmec civilization was a full century in the coming, and many archaeologist sites still remain buried in the jungles of Central America. Some find it odd in retrospect that it should have been taken so long. Well, not so odd, really. If you're trying to hide things, especially if you're trying to hide history and the truth, 
my people. All right, move along here. On the contrary, contrary, after the first traces of the Olmec came to light, a long time was to pass before anyone had an inkling of their significance. This is all the more surprising since the first relic to be found was no more, no, uh, no mere pottery fragment, but a colossal stone head weighing about twenty tons. Hmm. Now here's where the problem comes in at. Because remember earlier when I said the OMAC problem, okay, here's the problem. Okay. Or what they call the problem. Corey, Davis, and other European Western archaeologists, when addressing this culture, sometimes refer to it as the OMEC problem, as if there were something deeply disturbing about their findings, <laughs> which it was. Let us examine some of the surprises found in Olmec culture, and perhaps we can see where this problem lies. The first and most difficult matter to explain is that the Olmec culture appears to have been fully evolved, even in the most ancient stage. Koei points out that the Olmec culture did not develop gradually as one might expect of a sophisticated civilization. Hmm. It defies the paradigm where progress comes slowly in a line of development gently sloping ever upward. For that reason, Koei explains, probably, probably few archaeologists have been prepared for the disturbance which the discovery of the Olmec has played curve a classic civilization right at the very start of the formative. Nothing of a transitional period of the development preceding the Olmecs has been found anywhere in Mexico or elsewhere in Mesoamerica. Before the Olmec, there were simply tribes, but as Davies points out, the art and architecture of the Olmec heartland were clearly the product not of tribes but of kingdoms. <clears throat> so we all, so this is what they're trying to say is that there were other people here before the Olmecs, but that's a lie because the Olmecs been here over a hundred thousand years. Okay, they've been here a hundred thousand years, and they were the first inhabitants of the Americas. The first inhabitants. Where do you think the word Mexico come from? From the Olmecs. So let me read along here. The Olmec culture was obviously imported into South Central America from some existing civilization. They're not going to say where yet. They're not going to say Africa or from the African continent or the motherland. They're not going to say that. They're going to say from some existing civilization. Okay, let me move on here. <clears throat> Go on here. Additional evidence of their foreign origin comes from the fact that many of the raw materials prized by the Olmecs Elite are imported, some from still unknown sources. Everything at La Venta is exotic, reports Coy, in the sense that it was brought from somewhere else. Even the brightly colored clays have been especially selected and brought to the island, for they are not indigenous. Likewise, the jade and serpentine, ton after ton of the latter, came from a distant and as yet unknown source. Obsidian, a key material that the Olmec used expertly, 
was imported perhaps from Guatemala and from the Valley of Mexico. Coe compared the role of obsidian in Mesoamerica to the role of steel in Western civilization. He reports that the tons of this volcanic glass was brought into San Lorenzo from a variety of sources. Another much prized and important substance, says Coy, was iron, or capable of taking a high polish, for this was turned into parabolic concave mirrors, which must have played a great richer role. The greatest wonder, states Coy, is that most of the volcanic basalt used in their monuments can only have come from the Tuxla Mountains. 60 miles due west of Leventa. All of the colossal head were carved from basalt, basalt, not granite, as Megler supposed, and the old man heartland is singularly deficient in this volcanic rock. <clears throat> the colossal stone heads of the old man have been found in one and only one region of the world, in the, in the coastal region of southern Veracruz in Mexico. Davies states that a fairly broad consensus now maintains that the heartland or home territory lay in the rubber land of southern Veracruz and Tabasco. This region, according to Davies, is also the only place where Omex civilization appears in its entirety. The gigantic heads are un in intimately connected with Olmec culture. It was not until the middle of the 20th century that the Olmec problem came to a head. After radiocarbon dates established in San Lorenzo, culture is having flourished from 1200 to 900 B.C. As a point of reference, Moses is believed to have led the children of Israel out of Egypt at about the time 1200 B.C., San Lorenzo is the oldest of the Olmec sites, but if it is taken as being the proto-Olmec phase, it remains an enigma because it presents daily developed culture, and the cult of the jaguar appears as a fully-fledged religion. The jaguar. I'm going to repeat that again. I'm going to keep that again here. And it says here, this page, the coat of the jaguar appears as a fully-fledged religion, the jaguar, because in the in the Washita Moabite language, we always say it, when we greet each other, we always say, Aha'ate Washita East. That means, may your spirit and my spirit spring forth with the jaguar. That's what that means. So therefore, we do have roots with the Omex. And we do come from the Omex. And the Omex was the original people that were here in the Americas. But let me move along here, okay? The Omex problem was derived, also derived in part from the Negroid appearance of these heads. Davies described them as follows. The colossal heads are confined solely to the heartland and total of 16 are known, of which four come from Leventa and nine from San Lorenzo. They range from 1.6 to 3 meters in height and are all carved from blocks and basalt rock. Their features are very alike and only their expression differs. One even smiles, though most have a more solemn aspect, 
all wear the helmet-like hairdress, headdress, though the design of each varies slightly. The problem continues with the fact that the colossal heads are certain to be portraits of the rulers of the Olmec culture. It is likely that these heads were created to record the source of Olmec culture. Here we have refutations here. Okay, here are the refutations. Meckler was the first to speculate that the heads represent African voyagers. Michael Coy called this wild speculation. This is what he calls. Michael called this wild speculation. You hear that? <laughs> no, the, the one dares give us, our people, you know, our ancient foremothers and fore, our fathers, uh, the ability to do these things. But European, that is. Okay. So struck was Megler by his theory of Negro voyages from Africa to Mexico that he took up his pen again in 1871 for further wild speculations quite in line with the migrationist theories of his time. Davies also referred to this theory as speculation. It is therefore not surprising that their so-called Negroite features led to speculation as to the incidence of people whose traits seem untypical of the American Indians and revived Megler speculation on African migrants. American archaeologists were certain of two things, that the Old Bank homeland lay somewhere outside of Veracruz and that the homeland could not conceivably, conceivably have been in Africa. We do not know where the Olmec's homeland lay, said Michael Coy. Wherever it was, they already knew how to move and carve huge basalt boulders. Now here we have the unlikely, unlikely theories. Where then could these, where can then could these people, Negroi in appearance, have come from? Twelve hundred years before Christ, several theories have been proposed by those who reject their African origin. Coy suggested that the homeland of the Olmecs was in Tuxla Range, the mountainous region where they obtained the basalt to, to carve the colossal heads. No physical evidence has been found there, however, to indicate the presence of an advanced society. None of the magnificent carvings have been found there. Still, Coy persists. Tuxla Mountains would be the logical place. So on, so on moving to La Venta, they took a little bit of home with them to remind them of their volcano surrounded origin point. A search for a search for very ancient Olmec sites could and should be made in the Tuxlas. But we may never find them. The same volcanoes were spewing cinders and lava until the eighteenth century and the evidence may well be buried a hundred feet deep, never to be uncovered. Nigel Davis offers several suggestions about how the colossal heads should be interpreted. One is that they may not represent an actual race of people, but an art style. Following the discovery of Olmec remains all over America, on the Pacific as well as the Caribbean side, and also in the Central Plateau. Some argue that they were a Pacific tribe, while others view them less as a people <laughs> than an art style based on the common cult adopted in various regions. Davies also suggested that the heads are intended to be feline when he says Olmec works of an art range from su such tiny jade figurines to the huge stone heads found only in the coastal 
region of southern Veracruz. While these heads have no truly feline traits, the noses are common both to the, them and to the smaller figurines, figures. It is therefore not surprising that their so-called Negroid features led to the speculation as to the antecedents of people whose traits seem untypical of the American so-called Indians. Now you can see a lot. You can see a lot of uh, the racism in here that they just don't. Uh, they just could not fathom that our people had this kind of knowledge, and uh, our people were the first inhabitants of the American land of the continent of America. They couldn't fathom that, so they're trying to find out every kind of excuse that we weren't the first people that were here, and if we were, we weren't civilized enough to do the things that, that they had discovered that we have done. So let me go on. Davies then advances as a more logical explanation that the ancestors of the Olmec came into the Americas across the Bering Land Bridge. This means that the migration would have occurred during the last ice age, around 25,000 B.C., before the ice, icy passage melted the Olmecs would then have southward from Alaska and the whole of North America, leaving no evidence of their presence anywhere on the continent, traveled to the extent of Mexico to southern Veracruz, then wait some 20,000 years to develop advanced Olmec culture. <laughs> Found there in the 1200 B.C. in the words of Davis himself. I have to, have to, excuse me, I have to laugh at some of this bullshit. Okay, what these Europeans trying to say. And so far as Negroid features are depicted in pre-Columbian art, a more logical explanation surely exists that does not depend upon flights of fancy involving African seafarers. Negroid peoples of many kinds ought to be found in Asia as well as of Africa, and there is no reason why at least a few of them should not have joined those migrant bands who came across the Bering land bridge that joined Northeast Asia and North West America for so many millennia. Small men with Negro features were the Aboriginal inhabitants, Aboriginal meaning the first inhabitants of a land, or the first civilization of a land. Okay, let me read this over again. Small men with Negro features were the Aboriginal inhabitants of many lands facing the Indian Ocean, including India itself, the Malay Peninsula, and also in the Philippines, where they still exist today. Yes, they do. Okay, let me go on. One need to go no further than Manila International Airport to find proof of their existence. It is therefore not in the least Surprising that such elements should have joined the ranks of those early migrants who crossed the Bering Bridge before it sank beneath the waves. Their presence offers a more logical explanation of Negroid features than any other. Davies continues. Okay. Davies then goes to say that. It is uncertain that the colossal heads represents a Negroid race. 
even if one accepts the uncertain premise that Omeg art is based on the portrayal of some Negroids, this does not warrant the conclusion that such people were Africans. Think that's something. <laughs> Boy, they just don't want to give it up, do they? Okay. Davis then falls prey to a cross-cultural fallacy when he suggested that the heads all look alike. The features of the colossal heads are so stereotyped that it is to be doubted that they are stone portraits of individual rulers. They seem more likely to be a series of representations of the same divinized being, perhaps regarded as a universal ancestor or cultural hero who invented the different arts and skills. Koi, while admitting that the heads do indeed represent Olmec rulers, went on to suggest that the race represented by these portraits might come from Asia. It is virtually certain that these heads are portraits of Olmec rulers. Their faces with thickened, exverted lips and flat noses are reminiscent, reminiscent, or reminiscent of the physiognomies to be seen in some southern eastern Asiatic populations, but each is distinctive as in the emblematic device in their protective helmets. Now I'm going to tell you about, uh, stop right here, I'm going to talk about the, uh, the, uh, the terms Asia and Asiatic. There's still a lot of people who cannot uh, tell the difference or don't know the difference between an Asian woman man and an Asiatic woman and man. They still don't know the difference. They, uh, they still think the Asiatic refers to Asian people, but it does not. It does not. They don't refer to themselves as Asiatics. They refer to themselves as Asia. Any man and woman from China, Japan, or Nippon, or whatever you want to call it, or Korea, or Vietnam, or any other Asian landmass refer to themselves as Asians, not Asiatic. That is a European misnomer that they have, uh, <clears throat> that they have put upon those people. If you have asked a few uh Asian people from China or even from Japan and even from a few Koreans. And I, I, I did my own research on the word. And everywhere I, every time I asked them, what well, do they refer to themselves as Asiatic, they, Asiatic, they will frown up. And they will say no, emphatically no. We are Asians. My race is Asian. My nationality is Japanese, my nationality is Korean, or my nationality is Chinese, which they should be saying Manchurian, because that's who they really are. But that's another subject. I'm not going to get onto that right now. So, okay, so I want I wanted people, to, um, those that do not understand the word Asian and Asiatic, okay, they are not the same. Asiatic means a body of people. Or some people may say a the rulers of Asia, or masters of Asia. But it actually means a body of people. That's what the Asiatic people are. And that's who we are, Asiatic people. A body of people. Okay, Morris? All right, let me move along here. It is it is virtually certain that these heads are portraits of Olmec rulers. Their faces with thick and inverted lip and flat nose are reminiscent of the physiognomies 
still to be seen in some southeastern Asiatic populations, but each is distinctive as is the emblematic device on their protective helmets. One must actually look at the images presented by the Omen heads when evaluating the theory advanced by Corey and Davies. Both of them are willing to believe that these heads do not represent members of the Negroid race. And that, you hear this? And I'm going to read this again. When you hear this, it is, it is nonsense now. Both of them are willing to believe that these heads do not represent members of the Negroid race, which they, I mean, which, I mean, I mean, let me stop right here, which there are no such thing as a Negroid race, no way, you know, but that's what they refer to as Negroids. Okay, instead of uh, Aboriginal indigenous people. So, okay, and that if they appear to be Negroid, then they are certainly not African in origin. <laughs> I'm going on here. It seems reasonably to Coy and Davies that the people represented in these sculptures might indeed be Asians. No damn well they don't look look nothing like no Asian. No Asian person from China even would, would claim that. You can see clearly that they are Asiatic African Moors. There's no doubt. Okay, let me move it on here. And Davis advances that a, that is a much more logical explanation of their Negroid appearance. What they seem to be saying is that the Olmec civilization was simply too advanced to have come out of uh, out of the dark continent of Africa. In reality, such a prospect is not at all far fetched. You hear this shit? <laughs> Boy. Now, I'm going to go on moving on ahead here to refute all this madness, what they're talking about. Said here, it is curious that the Quizo position is associated with the Olmecs more than any other culture. The Quizo position is like a, it's like a, a kneeling down position, holding both hands on the knees as you kneel down which is ancient Asiatic tradition than any other tradition in the world, believe it or not. Okay? Now let me look at, read this here. Olmec connections to Africa. Ivan Van Sertima points out that the, that the, use, but the, the use by the Olmecs of jade nose plugs, tattoos, and special facial adornment Odd hairstyles and special gestures are further proof that the culture was influenced by and shared with others. Vis-a-vis African influence by Ivan Van Sertima says uh, in his book, They Came Before Columbus, African high cultures after the massive and continuous invasion of Europe left many Africans surviving on the periphery or outer ring of what constituted the best in African civilizations. Check that out. New facts that the challenge this image creates such consternation and incredulity that an extraordinary emotional campaign is mounted by some of the most respected voices in the scientific establishment to explain away the new data. <clears throat> the drift of a dynastic 
Egypt, Egypt from Africa has now dramatically slowed. Recent, recent archaeological find, findings have caught up with their myth makers. More and more, the history of Africa is being reconstructed upon the basis of hard objective data rather than upon the self-serving speculations and racist theories about the black barbarians. There you go. The Indians of the Española said they had come to Española has they had come to Española a a black people who have the tops of their spears made of a metal which they call guanin, of which the Columbus which has which Columbus himself had had sent samples to the sovereigns to have them assayed. When it was found that of 32 parts, 18 were of gold, 6 of silver, and 8 of copper, the origin of the word guanum may be see, tracked down in Manda language of West Africa through Mandingo, Kabonga, Taraka, Kanaka, Barbara, and Mandi, and V. In V, we have the form of the word Kani, which translated into native. Phonetics would give us guanin. Okay, Ivan Van Sertima, who is an expert in African languages, shows numerous instances where the names, cultures, and rituals of the Africans coincide with those of the ancient Americans. Appointed to Olmec studies in his assertion that the Bambara werewolf cult, whose head is known as Amatingi, meaning head of faith, appeared in Mexican rituals as Almanteca. The ceremonies accompanying these rituals, Ivan Van Sertima says, are too identical to have been independently evolved among people who have had no previous encounter. The term talking devil is called war in Mandingo and war Carib. He gives as an example in the Aztec language of Nahalti or Nahala, a west cloth is called Moxley in the African dialect if of Malinke. The same west cloth is called Masiti, the female lion cloth, as Nagua in Mexico. It is Nagba in the West African dialect of Mandi. Coincidence? I doubt it very seriously. You, you do the math on that. Okay. Says Ivan Van Sertima, the Malinke words meaning to smoke are Diamba and Diamba. They can account for South American smoke words such as Gripanabi. Okay. Demacharani, Yama, Maypores, Jima, Gahiba, Sima, Kaberi, Sinya, Baniba, Dejima and so on. The Mandingo word duly to smoke, which also concurs in the same form in Toma, Bambara, and in the variant forms in Duli and Luli in Mendi, can be can be found among the American languages. Hear that? Can be found among the American languages. Carib, Arawak, Cervantes, Baniba, Cromoran, and Georgia and Georgia. The African word for banana, 
runs right through these American languages. Ivan Van Sertima mentions that only explorers are occasionally encountered a village with populations comprised entirely of blacks, or as we will say, Moors. In 1513, Vasca Nunes de Baboa, another Spanish usurper, came upon a group of African war captives in an Indian settlement, told that the blacks lived nearby and were constantly waging wars. A priest, Faye Gregoria Garcia, wrote on the account of another encounter in a book that was silenced by the Inquisition. Here we found slaves of the Lord, Negroes, who were the first our people saw in the Indies. They were the first they saw in the Indies. Why? Because they were the original inhabitants that were there before anyone else. That's why. Okay, so Ivan Benestima is a respected number, is a respected member of the academic community, so the isolationists are forced to respond to his theories, but they essentially dismiss him in a few sentences and ne- never really counter his claims. The widespread use of cohesion included by the Obex are simply ignored. Vernon is called an Afrocentrist by his critics, who assert that he wrongly believes that all culture, including that of, of uh, Mexico, stems from Africa. While this is not his message, it is served to trivialize his careful research. Modern archaeology, dominated by the isolationist theories, they say that the oceans are barriers, not highways, has had a tough time dealing with Negroid and other features that obviously are different from our traditional image of the American Indian. Because they don't want to tell you in the history class in your schools, they don't want to tell the people the truth that we were before the so-called Indians, thousands of years before they came. And when they did come, a lot of them amalgamated themselves amongst us, and we amalgamated ourselves amongst them. That's why you find so many of our people um, with certain so-called uh, Native American features. If you see uh, a, a, a picture of my great-great-grandmother, which her name was Eastar Doss. She was from the Louisiana Territory. And uh, a lot, I did a lot of research about that area where I talked to Brother Shabazz Bay in the Louisiana uh, Territory Republic. And he was telling me a lot, a lot of uh, Moorish women down there was named Eastar. And I found that quite interesting that I was more bloodline to the Washita uh, Moors than I, than I believed, than I thought I was. I have blood ties to these people myself. So I know what I'm talking about when I'm talking about the Omex. And I can back Ivan Van Sertima's, um a lot of his uh, investigations and his research. I can back them up as well. That he is telling the truth. And he is bringing the truth to us. All right, let me move along here. Okay, one way the archaeologists dealt with this way to simply suggest that these weren't 
really Negroid features at all. Now, how the hell he come to that conclusion? Huh, okay. But merely stylized images of the Siberian hunters that created all the tribes of the Amazon, the Andes, Central and North America. Another tack was to admit that these were Negroid features, but to assert that Negroes must also have migrated across the Bering land bridges during the last ice age. This mainstream argument for Negroes having come across straits of the straits with other Siberian hunters circa 12,000 years ago is summed up in the book The Ancient Kingdoms of Mexico by the British archaeologist Nigel Davies, a critic of theories of ancient seafaring. Okay, figures. Davies flatly rejects any theories of Phoenicians, Egyptians, Chinese, Vikings, Africans, or anyone else ever reaching Mexico by boat. Like they're the only one that's got sense, and everybody else is a fool. So that's what that's the way. It, no, that's going to show you their uh, level of mentality. Okay, they think they're better than everybody else. All right. Yet, unlike some historians, he readily admits that Omex are Negroes. His explanation of Negroid Omex in Mexico is interesting. Look at the term. Listen to the term, Negroid Omex. Like, oh man. Okay. In the book, pages uh, 26, 27, Davis, Davis says, insofar as Negroid features are depicted in pre-Columbian art, a more logical explanation surely exists that does not depend upon flights of fancy involving African seafarers. Negroid peoples of many kinds ought to be found in Asia as well as Africa, and there is no reason why at least a few of them should not have joined those migrant bands who came across the Bering Land Bridge that joined Northeast Asia and Southwest America for so many millennia. Small men with Negroid features were the aboriginal inhabitants of many lands facing the Indian Ocean, including India itself, the Malay Peninsula, and also the Philippines, where they still exist today. As I read earlier, where they still exist today, and you still find them today. And the people who they're talking about, small men with Negroid features, they're talking about the Twa people. Which in some books they call them, uh, some of Gerald Massey's books, and you see some of them in um, Albert Churchward's books where they refer to them as Pictes. You know. But they're, uh, or Pygmies, or they say Pygmies, Pig, I mean P I G M Y, Pygmy, or Pygmies. But no, they are Trois. Trois is the correct name for them, not Pygmy. Okay. One need to go further. Okay, it says here before already. One need to go further to the uh, Manila International Airport to find out the poor is already. already. I'm sorry. Okay. I think I'm starting right here. Yet it is not racist to maintain that other cultures were not capable of building boats and crossing oceans, just as Europeans would do thousands of years later. I'm going to read this again. 
Yet, it, was, it is not racist to maintain that other cultures were not capable of building boats and crossing oceans, just as Europeans were to do thousands of years later. Try telling an African, so-called African-American history professor who believes in transoceanic traffic that he is a racist because he believes that Africans once traveled across the Atlantic and created an empire in Central America. The puzzle has been put forth to all archaeologists to explain why so many of the Olmec teachers look so much like Africans. How can figuring how can figures that look so obviously African not actually be connected to Africa because they are Africans? But anyway, let me go on. Archaeologists like Ivan Van Sertiman say that the Olmecs look African because they are Africans. I just said that, didn't I? Okay. The isolation must took must look elsewhere, and their explanation explanation is that some American Indians look like Africans. I'm going to read this again. The isolationists must look elsewhere, and their explanation is that some American Indians look like Africans because certain genetic traits mysteriously became preponderant. I wonder why. I wonder why. What did I just got through telling you about a minute ago? We were here a thousand years before the so-called Indians, before they came from the Straits, the Barren Straits, through Alaska and through Canada and through the rest of America, Americas. Then they met up with us. We were here when they came here or before they came here, but they amalgamated and we amalgamated them amongst each other. That's the explanation. That's the explanation of that some American Indians look like Africans because certain genetic traits are mysteriously became preponderant. Any similarities of the Omex to Africans or Negroids coming via Asia and the Pacific, whereas, for example, from the Melanesian Islands, the Adaman Islands, Adaman Islands, etc., is purely coincidental. Quizio is, con- is coincidental as well. And though it is a worldwide cultural phenomenon, statues found in this posture are not necessarily connected. Okay. Quizo, in fact, is is best ignored by the mainstream academics as no study of it is likely to help the isolationist point of view. When one begins to accept that the Olmecs were just of some sort of a sophisticated transoceanic naval empire, a time when the world was being explored by great navies, when the ancient sea kings ruled the earth, one can begin to accept that the posture of Quiso was part of the ancient of this ancient network. Part of it was the strange custom of cranial deformation. But at first, but first, we must discuss the transoceanic contacts with the Olmecs in great greater detail. If you notice, uh, the Quiso position, like I said, it's like uh, uh, kneeling down with both your hands on your knees and your body, upper body standing upright. But these were by our own ancient 
four mothers and four fathers. And everyone else took after it so, and so forth and so on. This is where they got their posture from, from our ancient foremothers and forefathers. A lot of people would say it was Chinese, and no, it is not. It is pure African, Asiatic posture. It was African, Asiatic posture origin, where the origin comes from, us. I have a picture, picture here I'm looking at it right now the Shang Chinese statue in Quizo position. But it is purely of African origin, not of so-called Chinese or Manchurian or Asian. None of that comes from us. That the human family and the human, uh, so human race came from us, from the Great Mother the Asiatic mother, African mother, because she is the mother of all civilization. That's why no man can never be greater than his mother. No way. Now we can go here to the mystery of the transoceanic trade. The starting fact is that in all parts of Mexico, from Campeche in the in the east of the south coast of Guerrero, and from Capas next to the Guatemalan border, to the Panuco River in the Hostaca region north of Veracruz, is archaeological pieces representing Negro or Negroid people having been found, especially in archaic or pre-classic sites. This is by European. Uh, historian Alexander Wundernal. In his book, The Unexpected Faces in Ancient America. <coughs> the mystery of the transoceanic trade. As we, are, well, as we are starting to see, if we keep to the narrow-minded view that the Olmecs were isolated from other Mesoamerican cultures and isolated from transoceanic contact, we will never solve the many mysteries concerning them. But by looking into the possibilities and evidence for transoceanic contact, both transatlantic and transpacific, we may unravel the enigma that is the Olmecs. To unravel part of the mystery of transatlantic trade, let us look at the ancient city of Kamakako, the westernmost. Mayan site known in Mexico, while several Mayan sites are, while several Mayan sites are located on the Yucatan Peninsula, while guts out into the Gulf of Mexico, east of mainland Guamacaco, lies near the mainland coast of the Gulf of Mexico, only a few miles west of the delta of the Yusamacenta River. This important river leads into the Mayan cities located deep in the in the Penton area of Guatemala. Camacaco was a major Mayan port city that flourished between 700 and 900 A.D. in the year of domination, like most Mayan sites. 
It is no doubt much older than the classic Mayan period, and with the recent discoveries at Nekbe and the Pedere, it may be, it may go back to 1000 BC or earlier. Kamakako, like many other Mayan cities, is thought to have been originally occupied by the Olmecs. Port cities are often washed away in hurricanes, and Kamakako may have been rebuilt many times over the hundreds, over thousands of years. Kamakako was still a flourishing Mayan port at the time of the Spanish conquest, but fell into the decay soon afterward. Kamakako is unusually for two reasons. The first is that there, since there are no stones in the area for building, Kamakako was built out of mud bricks. The Maya raised huge structures of brick at the city, unique in the Mayan world. The other aspect of Kamako, Kamakako that, may, that makes it rather unique is that many of these bricks have inscriptions on them. In 1977 and 1978, the National Institute of Anthropology and History excavated the site and found that it was entirely made of baked bricks. It was discovered that approximately 3% of the bricks which make up the site bore inscriptions. In a study done by the Mexican archaeologist Neil Steedy, for the National Institute of Anthropology and History, it was discovered that 3,671 bricks, or 3,671 bricks, had inscriptions on them. Of these bricks, 22,129, or 58%, had hieroglyphics on them. Old world inscriptions appeared on 499 of these bricks, or 13.6%, in languages such as Arabic. Phoenician Moors, Libyan Moors, Egyptian Moors, Agam Moors, Tefnak Moors, Chinese, uh, the, the ancient Chinese were Moors, Burmese, ancient Burmese were Moors, and the Palabarmese. Actually, 640 bricks or 17.3% had old world inscriptions on them, but if any brick had Mayan hieroglyphs on them with notes and old world inscriptions, they were placed in the Mayan brick category. Other bricks had drawings on them, 735 bricks or 20%, and 308 bricks were mixed or unknown to 8.4%. According to Steed, a complete set of the photographs of the bricks was taken to the Epigraphic Society in San Diego, California, where they were examined by linguists. It was how the, it was here that the above-mentioned languages were identified. Some of the bricks even had inscriptions of elephants on the, on them. Now you know in this area, elephants are not uh, uh, are not <clears throat> indigenous to this land. So who brought them over here? Hmm. Or then again, it could have been elephants here doing. One, the continent was known as Pangaea before the great split of the two continents, which is the African continent and the South and, and the American continent. Because if you look at the map of Africa and look at the continent of Africa and look at the map of the continent of America, 
you can you can almost tell that I mean you can tell that at maybe at one point in the time in ancient history and remote ancient history they were both joined together. Known as Pangea at the time. Maybe the African, like I said, maybe the elephants didn't come from anywhere. Maybe they were already here. That's what I'm saying. Okay. Now, let me go on. So, as noted above, several bricks and Mayan inscriptions mixed with other languages, typically translations. Dr. Barry Fell of the Epigraphic Society felt that the bricks were part of the language school of Kamakako, where students studying various languages drew on wet bricks. Afterwards, the bricks were used for the constructions of buildings, like people do today sometimes. Okay? Make their mark or whatever, and uh, then add the bricks. When they dry out, add the bricks to the building, that building up the building. Okay, let me go on. The bricks with inscriptions covered by Mexican archaeologists as simple construction bricks, and the inscriptions or drawings were not placed in such a way as to be visible. They were only discovered in the dismantling of structures during the government's archaeological excavations. Steve makes a good point when he says that there is a problem with the dating as the languages present in the bricks are from a period of approximately A.D. 0 to 400, while Kamako is generally ascribed to these dates as A.D. 700 to A.D. 900. Steele points out the possibility that these bricks might have been taken from an earlier structure and used in the construction of the present building. Steele suggested that that since only one-half or one percent of the bricks have been looked at so far. There is the possibility of there being more than one million inscribed bricks still awaiting excavation at Kamakako. Steve was was something very interesting to say about the currently accepted Mayan dating correlation. The dates seem to be clustered around the accepted classic Maya period, that is, from A.D. 700 to 900. This would strongly suggest that our correlation of the Maya calendar is off by some 300 to 400 years. Correlation for the present correlation was done basically by Thompson, the Goodman Martinez Thompson correlation. Use these three basic factors as signs of the entrance of the classic period. These factors were the arch, polychrome, pottery, and carbon. 14 dates. All these have been pushed back by some 300 years since the establishment of the present correlation. But we have not changed the correlation itself. We have we have very strong indications at Kamakako to do so. It will tentatively seem as that the correlation which says all dates some 260 years earlier will be more meaningful. Still goes on to say that the, as far as linguists or in agreement that the bricks of Kamakako show a variety of foreign languages, while archaeologists are in disagreement simply because what the linguists said just cannot be correct. This, I dare say, is not a very scientific argument on the archaeologist's part. 
I would also like to remind the reader that the ruins of the Kamakako and the discovery of inscribed bricks has been done by a highly respected group, the National Institute of Anthropology and History of Mexico. However, the entrenched dogma of the current isolationist does not change easily. Most easily, the discovery of Kamakako will be surprised as much as possible by the academics, and it will be the rare student in archaeology at any university who ever hears about the controversy over the Kamakako bricks. Okay, I'm about to go on the break here, five-minute break. And um, before I go on the break, I'd like to uh, say that you had any questions on this subject, dealing with the Omex, uh, where we came from, and uh, about us being the first inhabitants of the Americas, in which we did come from, a lot of us did come from Africa, most of us did come from Africa. I don't mind saying I'm a descendant of Africa, but we were, we were the first ones here the land of Pangaea. So all of this was Africa at one time, or we can say a Mexican. You have like a Mexican, the A-M-E, part of the letter of the uh, word. Then you have uh, the A-F off of Africa. Then you have America. So it's a whole lot of research to be done on this subject. I'm still doing research on the subject. I still have a lot to learn myself. I'm still learning more. Still learning. I'm still studying, studying, studying. And also studying, studying, studying myself as well. What I advise all of you to do. Okay, I'm going to go on a brief break here. And I'll be back, I'll be back in another maybe four or five minutes. All right.
Peace, peace, peace. I'm back. Okay. Before I start again, I'd like to let you uh, go on to uh, uh, dot com for uh, future events and look on his website, com. <clears throat> the listings he has, DVDs, books, uh, healing oils, and also he's a very skillful and an expert in red healing as well. And uh, 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 Mistress and Empress Kadira, my aunt Kadira El Bay, she's uh, definitely a, 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 a dealing with the zodiac signs and dealing with uh, um, what you call that. Oh boy, it's in my mind. Uh, she's an expert and, and very good in uh, astrology. That's what I wanted to say. Because <laughs> uh, it slipped my mind a little bit there. She's very skillful in that. And also, she's a record healer as well. And they deal with uh, a lot of uh, spiritual healing as well as physical healing of other sickness and diseases of the mind as well as in the body. Okay? And also, Tai Chi Kong and Qigong breathing and things of the sort. Check out their website. You may find it very interesting to you and may be very helpful to you as well. And uh, our phone numbers uh, is, my phone number is 314-644-4425. 314-644-4425. And Dr. Aleem L. Bay's number is 910 364 9099. 910 364 9099. Check us out. All right. Any questions, just give us a call. All right. Let me get back to, to the topic at hand here. Okay, here it says the Egyptians and the Trans-Pacific Trade. In this book, nineteen in his nineteen twenty book, I'm sorry, in his nineteen twenty three book, The Children of the Sun, University of Manchester archaeologist W. J. Perry attempted to demonstrate how a dual system of Egyptians and Hindu, so-called Indians, ventured out into the Pacific and colonized such places as Tonga, Tahiti, Hawaii, and Easter Island. I'm stop right here. The Hindu, actually, they are Hindustanis, not Indians. That's a European term that they gave them. One day, <clears throat> uh, called themselves venturing out and discovering the country themselves, but the country was already discovered, and not by the Europeans. So. There in the country is Hindustan, not India. Okay, let me move on here. <clears throat> Perry represented evidence that enjoys of ancient sun kingdoms of Egypt and India, or Hindustan, traveled into Indonesia and the Pacific, circa 1500 B.C., spreading their sophisticated culture. Perry traces the expansion of megalithic buildings from its origin to in, in Egypt, through Indonesia, and across the Pacific, all the way to the Americas. These early mariners searched the gold, Assyrian, 
and pearls and their incredible explorations from island to island. Perry says they were known as the children of the sun. One theory holds that the biblical story of the land of Ophir may be referring to trans-Pacific contact. According to the Bible circa 1000 B.C., King Solomon's Phoenician ships made a three-year trip to a land of gold called Ophir. The theory boldly stated at this that by 4000 B.C. and probably much earlier, the Egyptians were sailing across the Indian Ocean to Sumatra, Australia, and New Guinea. They mined gold and traded with Indonesians, explored Australia, and exploited its vast resources as best as they could. They continued across the Pacific in a joint Hindu-Egyptian colonization and commercialization of the Pacific and ultimately traded with the advanced cultures of North and South America. And I'm going to say this again. They ultimately traded with the advanced cultures of North and South America. Talking about the ancient ones, our ancient foremothers and forefathers. They were advanced cultures. Thousands upon thousands upon thousands of years before the European probably even existed on the earth. This is not racist talking. This is not bigotry talking. This is fact talking. You know, uh, this is not me having anything uh, biased against the European people, nothing like that. Not a, uh, on the contrary, I'm just stating uh, an actual fact. Okay. All right. King Solomon's ships followed these established trade routes in order to bring back the treasures described described in the Bible. Lapita pottery that is found throughout Solomon's New Caledonia, Vanuatu, and so far as Fiji, Tonga, and Samoa, as only dated to 4,000 years before present. Still, the obvious network of trading, mining, and commerce of 2000 B.C. may well be connected with the Egyptian traders with their far-flung gorges to the distant land they call Punt. It is believed by historians such, a har- such as Harvard's Berry Fail that the island of Sumatra played a major role in the long sea voyages of antiquity. Fail has claimed that voyages beginning in the Red Sea and the Horn of Africa went to Sri Lanka to Sri Lanka, Sumatra, and eastern Indonesia, New Guinea, and out into the Pacific. Many of these ships were Caucasians and Negroes. Fail thinks that these voyages were on a pre on a one year trip to the Isthmus, uh, to Huantepec, or alternatively Peru, were passed into the Pacific on earlier on either the north side or south side of New Guinea, and then continue such islands as New Britain, New Ireland, the Solomons, Vanuatu, and ultimately arrived at Fiji, Tonga, and Samoa. Tonga and Samoa became the main centers in the Pacific. Pyramids and other megalithic structures found on these islands, like the Ha'amanga stone arch on Tonga, lend credits to this area. The traders brought Lapita pottery with them later Tahiti and Hawaii were settled and Riti near Tahiti became the eastern capital. From here, such islands as the Marquesas, 
Rapa, Iti, and the Easter Islands were settled. Fail surmises that the ancient seafarers voyaged to Mexico, Central America, Ecuador, and Peru from these islands' bases. Throughout the Pacific, many of the island names include Ra, the Egyptian name of the sun god, sun god, Ra, like Amun-Ra, okay? Also, many Easter Islands features have an Egyptian Ankh at the base of their spine, re-erected at Anakina Beach by Thor Heyendahl, has a large Ankh card on his back. The location of these carvings at the base of the spine would seem to symbolize the kundalini power of the spinal column. The Egyptians built their ships without nails, and a number of ancient ships, many without nails. You hear this? I'm going to say this again. The Egyptians built their ships without nails, and a number of ancient ships, many without nails, having been found along the coast of Australia. Two ships... 40 feet long, can you hear, and 9 feet wide, built without nails, have been found near Perth, Western Australia. Another was found partially hidden underneath a sand dune at Wollongong, the New South Wales. There is a cave painting in the Prince Regent River Valley in the Kimberleys of Western Australia that includes a man with a beard and tall hat. Excuse me. The tall hat looking very Middle Eastern or Egyptian in origin. Around him are three women with long hair that is tied at the end. These women have been identified as Egyptian dancers with weights of, at the end of their hair. Their long weight had played the intricate part in their show. While Australian Aboriginals are famous for using boomerangs. It is not well known as the Egyptians used them too. I'm going to stop and say by Australia, Australian Aboriginals. Okay, like we are American Aboriginals. That's who we are. American Aboriginals, indigenous people. Okay, I just want to add that, put that in there. All right, let me go on. The Egyptians frequently hunted ducks in the marshes of the Nile while boomerangs and also, uh, and also play games with them. It is an archaeological fact that not well publicized that a trunk full of boomerangs was discovered in 1924 when King Tuckett tomb was opened by the archaeologist Howard Carter. Many of these boomerangs inlaid with gold and lapis lazuli are on display in the Tuckett exhibit at the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. Next to them is an Australian boomerang for comparison. Boomerangs were also used in southern Mexico. Boomerangs were also used in southern Mexico, Texas, Arizona, and California. It is likely that the Omex used boomerangs as well, and boomerangs can be seen on display in Mexico City Anthropology Museum. It is an interesting thought that the Australian Aboriginals, as well as tribes in the American Southwest, learned the use, the use of, the, of, the, of the simple but 
ingenious boomerang from the Egyptians. The French researchers Louis Powell and Jacques Bourget say in their book, An Eternal Man. Okay, in 1963, a strange and disconcerting piece of information came to us from Australia, a pile of Egyptian coins that had been buried for about 4,000 years was found in terrain sheltered by rocks. The readers who gave us this information referred to some rather obscure reviews, for there was no mention of this find in any archaeological publication. However, the widely read Soviet review, Tanika Molodezi, which devotes a regular column to unexplained facts with comments on them by, by experts, took up this matter. It, <clears throat> It even published photographs of the excavated coins. The anthropologist Elizabeth Gould Davis says in her book, The First Sex, okay, by G.P. Putnam Sons, who published the book in 1971, in Australia was found a pendant amulet of greenstone carved in the shape of the Celtic cross, an exact duplicate of an amulet found in Egypt at Tel Amarna, the site of the ancient city when Nefiti and the pharaoh Akhenaten held court 35,000 years ago. The time frame of Akhenaten and Nefertiti, circa 1200 B.C., is also the time frame for Lapita Pottery, circa 1100 B.C., and of the Shang Dynasty of China, 1600 1028 B.C. This is also the time frame often given for the beginning of the Olmecs. One one clear link between Australia and Egypt is that the, the Torres Straits Islanders between New Guinea and the northern Queensland use of the curious practice of mummification of the dead. The Mel Clay Museum at Sydney University has a mummified corpse of a Darnley Islander, Torres Strait, prepared in a fashion that has been compared to that practiced in Egypt between 1090 and 945 B.C. In 1875, the Sherbert expedition found similarities between Brondley Island boats and ancient trans-Nile boats. The island boats were used to row corpses to sea and lead them on a coral reef. Egyptian practice was to ferry corpses across or down the Nile for desert burial. Similarly, it was pointed out McIntyre in his book, The Secret Discovery of Australian of Australia, published in 1977, that the island of Mir and the Torres Strait bears the exact same name as the Egyptian word for pyramid, and even that the name for Egypt is Misar or Misraim. Another similarity with the Torres Strait Islands as well as the Solomon Islands, Fiji and Polynesia, uh, Polynesia is the use of night, nighttime of a wooden headdress was used. This carved headdress was used to slightly elevate the head while the subject slept on his back. This custom is unusual to ancient Egypt and certain Pacific islands around New Guinea. 
Now you have the world of the ancient sea kings. Imagine for a moment a world where oceans were highways for ancient man. Imagine that every few hundred years a sustained effort was made to reach far shores for vital trading goods, assume travel across the Atlantic and larger boat ships than Columbus used. Imagine tra- travel across the seas in large ships, some of them giant reed ships, others made of wood. This group sought exotic trading goods, including, including jade, gold, rare feathers, hallucinogenic drugs, other special her- herbs, and a host of other valuable odd items. It is thought that the men who made these trips were a mixed group of ancient seafarers who hailed from ports from Spain and Morocco to Egypt, Ethiopia, Oman, Kerala, Sri Lanka, and Indonesia islands such as Sumatra, Java, and Bali. These were the ancient sea kings sometimes called the Atlantic League or the Hittites or Biblos or the Phoenicians or the Khyber, all Moors. They built and com- commanded large cargo ships that would carry hundreds of passengers and crew and tons of cargo. Tungaraki canoes used by the Tonga kings in the Central Pacific could hold 300 people. The captains of these ships were royalty and knew the, st- knew the stars and the principles of navigation, much as Polynesians of today understand them. The captains from the Indian Ocean, often from Oman or the Red Sea, were out allied with the Hindu sailors of the southern Indian Ocean. This would include all of India and the Maldives, Sri Lanka, and Indonesia. Going east into the Pacific from Indonesia, they ran into the mountains and wild islands of New Guinea and the Solomons. Then the Pacific opens up and they passed such islands archipelagos as Fiji, Tonga, Tahiti, and the Marquesas before landing on the North American coast, probably around Baja, California. From here, they headed south to the Pacific Ports near centers like Mount Alban and Oaxaca, Mexico. Hmm. Very interesting. These ancient sea kings were a mixed group that included bearded, mustacho, Caucasians, and other and people with African, Oriental, and classics, Chinaman features. On top of of these of this were dwarves and hunchbacks, both considered good luck, who often served as musicians and storytellers to amuse the crew and keep them entertained. No one was a slave on the ship, though there was a strict hierarchy. All all were welcome heartily in the festivities that were that were had at the many ports of call and all shared in the booty. For the sailor who had made a few voyages, it would be a fulfilling and profitable life. On board, besides the captain and his close mates, there would have been a priest of sorts, shaman and magician, who will deal with the local plant experts and obtain the correct herbs and hallucinogens. These priests, apparently even more pointed hats and otherwise, acted as we might expect some ancient wizard to act. 
Here we go with the Chinese Unix and the circumnavigation. Recently popular and well-received books have come out that have championed that historical facts of early Chinese voyages literally around the world. In his best-selling book, The Year China Discovered the World, author Gavin Menzies maintained that a massive fleet of junks that were really 500 feet long was launched on May, March 8th of that year. This fleet was under the command of eunuch admirals loyal to the emperor, Zhu Di, and they were to sail to the end of the earth to collect tribute from the barbarians. They were to go beyond the seas and thereby unite the world in Confucian harmony. Not Confucian harmony, Confucian harmony. Spells C-O-N-F-U-C-I-A-N. Not Confucian, okay? Not to get that mixed up, okay? The journey of this unique Admiral fleet would take two years and circumnavigate the world, Menzies claims. In another book about China's pre-Columbian explorations, when China ruled the seas by Louis Lavitz, the author maintains that Shang Chinese were sailing to the Americas circa 1000 B.C., although she does not specifically maintain that Olmecs were part of the Shang Chinese contact. With Mexico, other archaeologists and historians have done so, including some linked to the prestigious Smithsonian Institution. The Smithsonian Institution published a monograph in 1974 entitled The Trans-Pacific Origin of Mesoamerica Civilizations by Betty J. Meggers. Megas is a career archaeologist and is still employed by the Smithsonian's 2007. In her monograph, Megas says, Anthropologists generally assume that civilization developed independently in the eastern and western hemispheres. Review of the features that distinguish the Olmec culture of Mesoamerica from preceding village-forming groups shows, however, that many are present in the earliest, earlier Shang civilization of China. If Olmec civilization originated from trans-Pacific stimulus, this has important implications both for reconstruction of, of, the, of a new world cultural development and for formulation of a valid theory of the evolution of civilization. Hmm. Let me read this again. This is a review of the features that distinguish the Olmec culture of Mesoamerica from preceding Village farming groups show, however, that many are present in the earlier Shang civilization of China. Wow. Okay. And to add more, see, aside from the culture evolution, no theory has provoked more violent dissension among anthropologists than trans-Pacific contact. These two topics were considered intertwined by the early disputants who argued that American Indian civilization were a consequence of introductions from old world sources such as Egypt, Phoenicia, Israel, Atlantis, and Mu. Uh, another Mu. Okay, uh, those of you land uh, have read the book, uh, the Land of Mu, by uh, James Churchward, the Land of Mu and the Children of Mu, also by James uh, uh, James Churchward. What's the interest read? I suggest you read those books and get those books. Okay? Call 
The Land of Mood by James Churchward and the and the Children of Mood by James Churchward. Okay. Moving on here. Um, by contrast, recent theorists have taken for grant for granted for have taken for granted that civilization arose repeatedly, or at least independently, in the old and new worlds. Paper will review the context and characteristics of the earliest civilization of Mesoamerica, known as Olmec, and compare them with the Shang civilization of China. Discussion of the significance of the many striking similarities will illustrate some of the theoretical problems that must be resolved before a reliable foundation can be laid for a theory of the origin of civilization. In her Smithsonian paper, Meggers gave archaeological evidence of the Olmec as the earliest civilization in Mesoamerica, discussing their pyramids, monuments, art, calendars, trade, and religion. She then discussed the various characteristics of Shang Dynasty. Among the similarities between these two societies, societies he says, are their, their writing styles, their esteem, use of, and long-distance trade in jade, the use of batons as symbols of rank, their settlement patterns, as well as their archaeological styles, the long-range acquisition of luxury goods, possession of Lying deities and the use of cranial deformation. While she admits the difficulty of the task, Mega concludes that the same Olmec similarities can be used to prove either independent development or cultural diffusion. The basic difficulty we face, she notes, is that a search for cultural origins is handicapped by both unrecognized biases and limitations of data. Similarly, one of Mega's students, Vincent H. Maelstrom, writes in his monograph, Esapa, Cultural Herds of the Omex. He says here, located near the edge of the Pacific coastal plain in the far eastern corner of Chiapas, Mexico, is the large pre-Columbian ceremonial center known as or Izapa. Situated on the terrace of a small stream tributary to the Rio Sanchari, the border river between Mexico and Guatemala. The site consists of more than 130 mounds sprawl over several hectares of lush tropical lowland in the base of the volcano, volcano Tacana, the second highest mountain, 4,094 meters in Central America. Although scarcely half a dozen of Azapa's cobble-studded mounds and pyramids have been restored to date, it is clear that they once they once formed part of an elaborate, well-planned complex of considerable magnitude and importance. Just how important this complex may be is only now emerging. Archaeologists have tentatively assigned Azapa to the late formative period, corresponding roughly between 600 to 100 B.C., primarily on the basis of a stylistic evidence of banal, okay, uh, in this book, 
Uh, he published in 1969. Martin Banal, the one who wrote the book uh, uh, the, the 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 Black Athena Part One and Part Two, and you also want to check that out too. The Black Athena by Martin Banal Part One and Part Two. Spell M A T I N Bernal B E R N A L Martin Bernal. <clears throat> there is nevertheless good reason to believe that Zappa is far older than such evidence would suggest. Indeed, Bernal concludes that Zappa may be synchronous with the oldest known Omex site at San Lorenzo and La Venta. It has been shown, for example, that a settled village worth of life was in existence in the region of Izapa, possibly as early as 1500 B.C., judging from the radiocarbon dating of finds at Ocos on the coast of Guatemala, just 45 kilometers away. Additionally, evidence admittedly circumstantial has been provided recently as a result of the author's identification of Izapa's as the birthplace both of the Mesoamerican calendrical systems and of the knowledge of magnetism among the regions of pre-Columbian cultures. Yet it is the author of hypotheses are correct then. Then two astronomical fixed points can be established against which to test the one precise date bequeathed to us by the Mayan chronologists and presumably the Olmecs before them. This is the date selected as the origin of the long count system equated as August 13, 31 B.C. by the Goodman Martinez Thompson. Correlation elsewhere in the press, the author explains how he determined that the long count system, a long, uh, <clears throat> uh, the long count system, a fusing of both, the 260-day religious almanac and the 365-day secular calendar would appear to have been devised in 235 B.C., a date originally suggested as early as 1930 by people, but likewise discounted by Thompson in 1960. Encouraged by the knowledge that he had reached independently the same conclusion as an earlier scholar whom Thompson had lauded for his mathematical brilliance and other connections. The author employed a computer to run back both the secular and sacred calendars to their starting points. For the I'm sorry, for the secular calendar this meant that a day known to the Mayas as zero pop or opop should coincide with the summer solstice, whereas for the sacred almanac a day called one one mix or I mix would coincide with the August 13th. As a result of this operation, the author has shown that the secular calendar probably dates from June 21st, 1323 B.C., and that the sacred almanac traces its origin in August 13, 1358 B.C. Hmm. Okay, significantly, both dates are entirely in accord with the radiocarbon determinations from the Ocas area south of Azapa and from the San Lorenzo area of Veracruz State, which was presumably one of the first Omec sites into which the calendrical principles diffused. 
Hadizapa, served solely as the birthplace of Mesoamerica calendrics, that would have been reason enough to regard it as a major cultural earth amongst the Olmecs. However, in at least one other field of knowledge, Azapa seems to have been in the vanguard of Olmecs learning as well, namely terrestrial magnetism. For some time, researchers have believed that the Mayans were aware of magnetism, apparently using it to align the structures in their major ceremonial centers. Then, in 1973, Coy discovered a small bar of polished hematite at San Lorenzo that he assumed may have been used as part of a compass found in a layers dated to found in a layers dated approximately 1000 BC. This suggested that the Olmecs were aware of the magnetism about millennium before the Chinese. Let me say this again. This suggests that the Olmecs were aware of the magnetism about a millennium before the Chinese. However, doing fieldwork at Azapa in January 1975, the author discovered evidence that the inhabitants of this site not only knew about magnetism, magnetism but that they also, saw, also seem to have associated it with the homing instinct in the sea turtle. Such a conclusion stems from the fact that a large sculpture of a turtle head located about 30 meters to the southeast of the main pyramid has been carved from a basaltic boulder rich in magnetic iron and ex executed with such a precision that all the magnetic lines of fort come to focus in the turtle snoot. Although no other magnetic stones have been found at Azapa, there are at least two other representations of the turtle present at the site. One of these is a sculpture near the east wall of the main pyramid, which has the shape of an upturned turtle shell and which, when filled with water during the rainy season, may have a provided a frictionless surface on which to float a needle or sliver of lodestone. The other is a large altar in the form of a turtle at the west end of the ceremonial ball court in whose north wall is embedded a carving of a bearded man standing in a boat moving across the waves, that the Zoppins were a seafaring people and maintained relatively regular contacts with places as far distant as Ecuador over a long period of time has been shown by the similarities and ceramics found in the two areas. That they should have failed to observe the great migrations of East Pacific Rid Ridleys moving between Baja California and Ecuador, or of the black turtle, which migrates between the Guatemalan coast and the Galapagos Islands, while on such voyages is the quite inconceivable, they says, and that they should have been impressed by the sureness of the turtle navigational ability and and compared this to the direction-finding property of the lodestone would have taken no great leap of imagination, where the Azapa's maritime connections and concluded trans-Pacific contacts cannot be demonstrated at this point, though Megas, among others, 
has presented striking evidence of similarities between the Olmecs and the Shang Dynasty Chinese. Chinese. Because maybe they all were one and the same. They were one and the same. Because we have to, uh, if you, uh, those of you who have been studying a lot about our history, and especially our ancient history, uh, a lot of the ancient China, uh, ancient Chinese, or say Manchurians, were Moors. This is a lot, a lot of a uh, big problem with a lot of even Chinese themselves. They're not willing to admit that. Most of them are not. Or even in Japan, which is uh, which uh, to mean Ebonite or Ebonite people. Japa means Ebonite means means people. Ebonite people. Japa, Ebonite, to be Ebonite, or Ebony, or Ebony Magazine, as you can say. Nese means people, Japa means Ebonite, Ebonite people. So you know the ancient Japanese or Nipponese were Moors, or Asiatic people, as you want to say. Let me move along here. In any event, it would appear that the Asapa is reserved as a major center of cultural innovation as Mesoamerica, whether as a trans-Pacific bridge or as a earth in its own right. Therefore, Asapa may have been a major Olmec Shang port of the Pacific as much many of the overland roads from Oaxaca and areas would have, have converged at Isapa or nearby, goods from the Atlantic side of the Isthmus would have been brought overland as well, and it may well be the case that tones of jade, gold, hallucinogenic drugs, mushrooms, chocolate, and other valuable trade items were shipped out of Azapa back across the Pacific, some of them no doubt getting back to China. Later, Spain ran this lucrative trade through their ports in Manila, in Acapulco, in a U.S. News and World Report story published on November 4, 1996, it was reported, reported that a Chinese-language scholar named Hang Ping Chen, Hang Ping Chen sorry, examined the famous Olmec figures and accompanying jade Celts from La Venta, which are now at the National Museum of Anthropology. Of Anthropology, according to the news magazine, he declared after examining some writing on the Celts that clearly these are Chinese characters. Megas became involved in this important discovery, and we will discuss this in more detail in Chapter 6. Hmm. So we are now, now to think of the frowning babies with no genitals as Chinese eunuchs. Are they unhappy, or, or, or are they unhappy at having their genitals removed, or are they unhappy because... Their homeland of China has been destroyed, and they cannot go back. Do we have explanation of why, obviously, Negroid features have Negroid features have Oriental features as well? Were the Negroids taken from the Africa or Melanesia to become a warrior class cultured by the Chinese? Warriors or their army? Did they intermix? You do the math. All right. I'm about to close tonight, people. And I hope everything I said to you was helpful you tonight. So I say to you, 
Until we meet again next Wednesday at Haate Washita East. As your spirit and my spirit spring forth with the Jaguar. Peace and love to all the human family. Good night. <laughs>